One of the criticisms of Tim Burton's Batman movies is that they were made by a guy who didn't like comic books. Then came 1995 and Joel Schumacher with the hold my beer approach to comic book movies. But despite having more neon than a Tokyo nightclub, a two-face with one personality, and arguably the worst cinematic Batman ever, we're still here to prove to you that Batman Forever is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A, grades in B, movies. And we have a first timer on the show today. Joining me to discuss Batman Forever is Lyle Robichaud from the Oh Yeah Wrestling Podcast. Lyle, welcome to the show for the first time. How are you doing, man? I am doing great, Jason. I am so excited to be here. So excited to talk about this movie that is such a big part of my childhood, but at the same time is so bad. Okay, I have to ask, because there there are some Batman movies out there that would definitely qualify for this. What is it about Batman Forever that made you want to do this one? It is an important movie to me. It's one of those things that as I grew up, I got to experience realizing that one of the things you loved so much as a kid is objectively terrible in a lot of ways. (laughs) I had to grow up and see good Batman movies and experience, you know, going to the theaters and seeing The Dark Knight and recently uh, Matt Reeves, The Batman, and seeing how this is done in the absolute best way possible. And then I had to look back and realize, oh, how obsessed I was over something that was made maybe the worst way possible to the point where I got a tattoo that was loosely inspired by this movie. Oh, no. Oh, Oh, you didn't. My first tattoo is the little Batman symbol on my left hand, and I asked them to try to get Joel Schumacher's Batman Forever Batman logo as close as they could. You may be the first person I have ever heard willingly admit that they have a shrine on their person of the Joel Schumacher Batman era. Oh, you, you had see, to put the way that I like to see it. The way I like to see it is that I am such a fan of the character that I rode through it through the goods and the bads and appreciate all parts of it. That's the way I look at it. That is literally like like someone, you know, in year 75 of waiting for the Cubs to win the World Series going, I still believe. <laughs> I still believe. It's going to happen. That, that That's pretty much up there with, you know, believing one day that the Brooklyn Brawler will win the WWF championship. That's ne- never going to happen. Just- it ha- listen, uh, a prepubescent boy has won the tag team championships and David Arquette won the world championship. Oh. So really... Is anything off the table? Uh, No, no. And because you mentioned that, maybe one day we'll bring you back to talk about Ready to Rumble. Because I'm pretty darn skippy. That would qualify for this as well. And I have seen that too many times as well. Oh, just shaking my head at the thought of doing that one. But before we get into Batman Forever, it is time to take this trip into the Batverse and trailerize it. Gotham. A dark city covered in the grime and filth of the criminal underworld. In 1995, that all changed as the city busts out the glow sticks like a tripped out rave. With a Batman that looks different than the last time. A Two-Face that looks different than the last time. And a Batmobile that looks like it was made for Aquaman, the 
thanks to an inexplicable dorsal fin, Batman Forever aims to be looked at forever as the beginning of the end until the next beginning of the end. Thanks, DCEU. Val Kilmer stars in Batman Forever. Rated PG-13 for excessive bat nipples. <laughs> you know the bat nipples had to go into the trailer I, eyes. I was trying so hard not to crack. I was trying so hard not to crack and ruin the take. I won't lie. All right, let's do the rundown here. This stars Val Kilmer, Chris O'Donnell, Jim Carrey, Tommy Lee Jones, and Nicole Kidman in the main roles. You also had completely random appearances by Drew Barrymore, Debbie Mazar as Sugar and Spice. And if you look closely enough, a pre-Iron Man John Favreau is in this movie. You got to look closely. You got to look closely, but he's there. However... This has an almost starred list that has broken my printer. This movie, I think, has gone through more almost stars than I've ever seen in the run of this podcast. So we got a lot to run down here. There, It's so much. It's such a big mountain to climb looking at this movie because it, it's such a turn from what came before it. Mm-hmm. Oh, completely. And the thing is originally the idea was to have tim burton come back in and keep going with michael keaton as batman and then they kind of saw what warner brothers wanted to do with it and they're like yeah i'm out and then you have to all of a sudden start from scratch so other actors that were considered for batman before val kilmer came in you had william baldwin daniel day lewis kurt russell alec baldwin ethan hawk ralph fines tom hanks Keanu Reeves and Johnny Depp. Now, there's one or two names in here I actually wouldn't mind seeing as a Batman. I think I think a, a 1995 era Daniel Day Lewis would have been an amazing Batman. Honestly, that was what I was thinking too. The, when that name came up, that was the one where I was like, he would be probably the best one. And honestly, none of those are as weird as Nicolas Cage as Superman. So, oh, tell tell me you've seen the documentary of the of the uh, the 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 life of or the death of the life of Superman or whatever it is. Like I, the, I haven't seen the documentary, but I have, I know I've seen the screenshots from the movie and I've seen the set pictures of him in the suit and just, wow, there's, yeah. there's a lot going on there. I don't know though, if I can picture Tom Hanks ever no. as a Batman, maybe an Alfred, but not a Batman. Uh, one of the, actually one of the high points is Michael go as I think is, I think that's how you pronounce it. Michael last Goff. Go yes. Al- Michael Goff as Alfred. I think that's one of the better turns in this movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Tom Hanks does not look the. Tom Hanks looks like somebody's <laughs> soccer dad. Tom Hanks looks like he's supposed to be like at the bake sale. He does not look like Batman. I mean, also, I mean, Kurt Russell. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm a massive fan of Kurt Russell. I think everything is better with Kurt Russell in it. Um, and I could actually see him as a Batman. Maybe not so much as Daniel Day-Lewis, but I mean, Val Kilmer, for what it's worth in 1995, there's, there is a lot of star power in him there. Um, then you have to take a look at Robin. And it, when, when Tim Burton was director, Marlon Wayans was slated to play Robin. <laughs> and I'm just like... Huh? Like you can almost picture the meme. Go, huh? And then of course, when Tim Burton was out, uh, they were like, "Yeah, no, no." Here's the list of actors that were under consideration for Robin before Chris O'Donnell stepped into the role: Leo DiCaprio, Mark Wahlberg, Matt Damon, Matt Damon, Jude Law, <laughs> Hugh McGregor, Corey Haim, 
Corey Feldman, Toby Stevens, and Scott Speedman. Um, I am so glad that the Corys were not in that list. There are a few yeah. names that actually did stick out for me here. Leo DiCaprio, like 1995. Leo era, DiCaprio, Leo absolutely. DiCaprio. It makes sense. Now, now, admittedly, 1995, he had three movies come out. Total Eclipse quick in the dead and some little movie called the basketball diary so i think he made the right choice in 1995 but of that group is there anyone that really kind of stands out for you as as going oh, maybe not maybe maybe that wouldn't be so bad honestly i was gonna say leo in the first place because like i do love quick in the dead as well mm-hmm. but i think leo had had the look he really did have the look of a dick grayson type character and going back to kurt russell as batman i kind of see kurt russell's val kilmer looking very similar for facial structure. So that big square jawed kind of broad look they were looking for, I could see that as well. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think Kurt Russell would have added a bit more gruff than uh, than Val Kilmer would have. We also have to talk about the villains in this one. When I read that the idea for the Riddler was to be Mickey Dolan's, Mickey, freaking monkeys, Mickey Dolan's. And I'm just like, Again, huh? What? Apparently, the role was also offered to Robin Williams. Uh, Now, here's the thing. Apparently, Robin Williams was up for the role of the Joker, but that was basically used, according to interviews, as bait to get Jack Nicholson, and Robin Williams was pissed. And then they're like, well, what, what if you're the Riddler? And then Tim Burton's out, and it's like... Oh, well, Batman just screwed me twice. So, I mean, Robin Williams, 1995, is the Riddler, maybe... Maybe. I think I could see that. I th- knowing some of his other more serious work where he does kind of slip over to the nefarious side. I don't know if you've seen August August Rush, but he plays a villain in that. And he does do a good devious when he wants to. Mm-hmm. And I think he could pull off the Riddler. I really do think that if he got that laugh to be on the evil side that he has, he could maybe tilt the crazy a little bit and be a little bit more subtle than than uh, who ended up getting the mark. Mm-hmm. But And I think he could make it work. I really do think that he's skilled enough to uh, to definitely spin that into something interesting. I would love to see Robin Williams as oh, the Riddler. Oh, Robin Williams could have acted in anything. But there's a few other names here, and, and I had to kind of shake my head when I saw some of them. Um, Matthew Broderick, no. No, I mean, no. I, like, I like Matthew Broderick, but no. Steve Martin, eh, well, you know, maybe. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting one. Because that is a maybe, and I don't know why. But here's the one that, that that is going to hurt your brain a little bit. Because apparently, at the time that this movie was in production, lobbying hard to get the role was Michael Jackson. I have heard <laughs> this. I have heard this rumor. And I have seen, uh, even back when I was younger, I remember reading that that was eventually like one of the plans early on and seeing the direction of the sets and stuff. I could, if they had that exact same set and Michael Jackson was the Riddler, I wouldn't doubt it for a second. Oh, it looks like a music video. A lot of it looks like a music video, which I mean in that setting, but, but then again, Michael Jackson, Right as the, no. yeah no it wouldn't it wouldn't have been well acted but I could see it I could definitely see where they looked at this and went oh this is perfect he's gonna fit just great and visually yeah maybe it would have probably would have been an absolutely fantastic dance scene in it at some point which would have crossed it more into Batman and Robin territory but uh, I I could see it happening but it wouldn't be fun yeah I mean if you have to end every riddle with 
No. Just, just, <laughs> and uh, the theme from Moonwalker has to be an Easter egg in there somewhere. Oh, you know he would moonwalk to, through every single crime scene and, and just 100%. Uh, again, no. Uh, and then there was Two-Face. Apparently, Mel Gibson had to turn down the role because of scheduling conflicts due to Braveheart. And I'm thinking 1995 era Mel Gibson actually would have been a really decent Good two-face. two-face like yes he he i mean we're talking like braveheart era right we're talking peak mel gibson here um we saw that he can pull a little bit of the crazy uh with lethal weapon we know that he could do the comedy but we know he can also do the series like mel gibson in that era like was almost untouchable as far as the properties that he was taking on and had he stepped into two-face i think i mean it definitely would have been a step up and we'll, we'll get into tommy lee jones a little bit later but Mel Gibson as Two-Face, I really don't hate that concept. Absolutely not. And like you said, he had to turn down the role to take on Braveheart, which mm-hmm. was amazing in its own right. So it's that's that's the caliber, that's the heat he was running at there. So it, it would have been fantastic. It, he was an actor at the time that couldn't put out a bad movie. Now, then there's Dr. Chase Meridian, as played by Nicole Kidman. But when Tim Burton was slated to direct this it was supposed to be played by renee russo in 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 contrast to michael keaton and then apparently when michael keaton was out they're like okay well renee russo is too old to play against val kilmer so they brought in nicole kidman but they also considered for the role of chase meridian um sandra bullock cindy crawford gene triplehorn linda hamilton and robin wright um of that list, the one that really stands out to me is the one I actually would really would have liked to have seen is Jean Triplehorn. Because if you remember her from Basic Instinct, which was around that era as well, uh, she, she's a phenomenal actress. And she was really kind of on the rise at that point, like the, her star was coming up and whatnot. And I think she could have handled the role of Chase Meridian very well. See, I hooked on to as soon as you said Sandra Bullock, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. That's the one that really jumped out at me as, oh, this, this, this would be really good because I think she is fantastic in everything. I love the blind side, love a lot of her work. So I think that she would have made a really convincing Chase Meridian. In some of the scenes where Nicole Kidman kind of made the character look a little bit dimmer, I think she could have pulled it off a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And then there was also talk that apparently uh, the, the idea was pitched that Nicole Kidman play Poison Ivy. And I could so picture Nicole Kidman as Poison Ivy. That would just that would have been perfect casting. Not that, not that she was bad as as Doctor Chase Meridian, but can you imagine a Nicole Kidman Poison Ivy in this? I absolutely think that she could rock it. I think she could be a better villain in this style of universe than than she could be the role that she was put in here. Oh, I mean, if you think about her role in To Die For, like, she could so easily pull that off. I mean, Nicole Kidman's awesome anyways to begin with. Uh, And then there was also talk about Michelle, bringing Michelle Pfeiffer back as Catwoman. And there was kind of a reference to Catwoman in the movie as well. Um, But they were like, well, that would be too many villains. And I don't disagree with that one. In the director's chair, we know it's... We know it's Joel Schumacher for for all that that is. And we know that Tim Burton was supposed to do it. But apparently, after Tim Burton backed out, there was talk of bringing in Sam Raimi to direct this. That This would have been a much different Batman Forever with Raimi in the chair. 
it would have been a completely different Batman forever, and it probably would have sparked a completely new cycle because knowing Sam Raimi, it was we would probably be really on the nose tone wise because he has a really good handle on taking a character that he's never touched before and getting the tone right on the first try. He's done it with Spider Man. Uh, looks to be he's about to do it with Doctor Strange, and uh, yeah, I think he could probably pull it off for sure. And it is interesting because Doctor Strange does look like it's going to be phenomenal um, because, of course, he can handle all that kind of stuff. And the next thing with Spider-Man is, you know, prior to that, the last time someone had touched a live action Spider-Man was like in the 70s and it didn't go very well. So, you know, he had kind of free reign to, to do what he needed to do. But, yeah, Sam Raimi doing a Batman movie, I think, would have been phenomenal. Um, but we got Joel Schumacher. <laughs> we, we, we got Joel Schumacher. <laughs> We got the Phantom of the Opera. We got phone booth. That's what we got. <laughs> oh, God. Now, yeah. as far as money went, this uh, had an estimated budget of $100 million. Uh, domestically, it made $184 million. Worldwide, 336 In 1995, the, the, that's some good bank right there. And when it debuted, it debuted with $52 million, almost 53 on the weekend of June 16th, 1995. There were no other debuts. Like, everyone kind of cleared the path for Batman Forever. So, really, the the, the movie that it knocked down to number uh, to number two was Congo. Like, it's it, it wasn't even close. Like, number two had $10 million. After that, it was Batman Forever. And it only lasted one week at number one. It was knocked out the next week by the wide release of Pocahontas, and you're not you're not going to beat Disney. You're just nope, not going to beat Disney. Yeah, you can't step to the mouse. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. 
Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And then there are the accolades. Because there were some. There were some. Uh, It was nominated for Best Fantasy Film at the Saturn Awards. uh, Lost to Babe. Uh, it was nominated for makeup. It lost to seven. Uh, nominated for special effects, lost to Jumanji, and, lo- and nominated for costume design, which lost to Twelve Monkeys. That's at the Saturn Awards. It was also nominated for worst sequel at the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards that year. And here's the interesting one. Here's the interesting one that I find fascinating. U2's song on the soundtrack, "Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me." was nominated for Best Original Song at the Golden Globes and then promptly nominated for Worst Song at the Razzies. How, how do you get both with U2? I, I think it's because U2 is such a non-Batman sounding band. When you think of Batman, you don't think of U2, I don't think. I don't think of Bono. That is certainly something I do not think about when I envision the character of Batman. <laughs> the edge is not edgy. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, now, as far as the rating goes, and this is why we're talking about this, it has a meta score of 51. But when you get to the tomatometer, it is a 40% tomato meter with a 32% audience score. So the critics were actually a, a bit more forgiving for this one, which is kind of surprising. Well... Yeah, when you consider it's a comic book movie, it's actually kind of surprising that the that the audience um, did you know were were harsher on this. It is like the reception to this is strange in a couple of ways to me. I've talked to a lot of people about this movie, like over the course of how many times I've watched it. I've watched it with people who are into comic books. I've watched it to people who like this is kind of the first experience with Batman they've ever had. And I, it just seems that people who've never seen a comic book movie sometimes love it. Like uh, my girlfriend who has watched it with me said, this is actually, I like it. She liked the, she said, but I like it because it's colorful. I like it because it's kind of like all over the place. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I don't. Batman is supposed to be the Dark Knight, the Cape Crusader, yes. right? Live in the shadows. And we got all the neon party and we kind of made it look like Tokyo Mater. Um, sorry, <laughs> still not over Cars 2 after, after having to watch that one last week. Um, but let's get to the breakdown in here. And we have to start with the Batman, Val Kilmer. So in the, in the pantheon of Batman, where does Val Kilmer sit for you? He sits above George Clooney. I will say that right now, that I don't think he was this bad as George Clooney. In order for me, it goes, uh, and this is going to be a little bit of a controversial take, but it does go Robert Pattinson, Michael Keaton, Christian Bale, Val Kilmer, uh, George Clooney. For me. Where's where's Batfleck in that? Batfleck. We don't talk about Batfleck. Oh, really? We don't talk about Batfleck. I, I find that fascinating. I mean, Christian Bale is, I think, right at the top for me. I'm not going to get into the animated Batman because, you know, I, I 
to me the the, the voice of of Kevin Conroy is. Yes, Batman. Kevin Conroy is Batman. Absolutely, I agree. When I read the comic books, I, it's his voice in my head. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, kudos to Jason O'Mara for uh, for stepping in there as well and creating an almost I would say almost equally iconic Batman. But it's funny because it, it, since we're talking about animated Batman, as I'm listening to Val Kilmer talk while he's in the suit, because every Batman adds that little extra gruff to to their voice when they're talking and you hear him talking the first reference that comes to mind is the animated series batman the brave and the bold uh with diedrich bader uh as the voice of batman and it's almost like his performance in this almost retcons val kilmer and almost justifies that performance because batman brave and the bold is a bit more can be because it's a bit more on the you know for lack of a better term adam west side of 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 batman um that intonation that he provides to batman in that cartoon series is almost akin to what val kilmer does it's it, like i said it's almost like a retcon in that in that sense it's really funny you compare the two because when I watch Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, they are very similar to Batman the Brave and the Bold because they are both based very, very heavily off Batman's silver age of comic books. You can see the influence from the 70s era comic books in Brave and the Bold very heavily. He was wearing the blue cape and stuff, always teaming up with somebody. It was more like a zany, you know, fun adventure like the 1960s Batman uh, than a more serious, you know, crime drama. But that's the thing. Tim Burton's first two were so very much their own kind of style, but still very much played things on the dark side following, like, uh, the Dark Knight Returns angle and, like, very much, you know, still a darker, brooding story. These ones took a much bolder step into that silver age where kind of everything's on the table. There's crazy sci-fi nonsense and space jumping and stuff, a lot of which, you know, you can see the seeds planted here for that kind of stuff. And when you think about what Tim Burton did, it harkens back to the early Bob Kane days, you know, the the golden age era Batman, when he did lurk in the shadows, when he did fight criminals, when he was, you know, the the Dark Knight. And then, of course, you had um, the the post-World War II era of comic books into the Silver Age, and shortly after the time that the Comics Code was was introduced because of the McCarthy hearings um, in in uh, in the Senate, uh, looking at uh, comic books because of the of the of the writings of the uh, seduction of the innocent book. And then everything kind of went on to the, well, the superheroes are going to fight monsters and they're going to fight like the, these things that are non-offensive to children. Like they'll fight robots, they'll fight monsters. It's okay. They're not, they're not going to buck authority. They are authority. They, they work with the cops. Um, and, and things did take a bit more of a campy tone because they tailored it more to comics because they needed to be in line with the comics code. Uh, so that's why you get the Joker with like giant oversized cards with Batman, you know, attached to it, like, you know, in these elaborate Austin Powers era-esque kind of uh, you know James Bond you know you're going to sit here for 20 minutes while the laser slowly creeps towards you we know you're you're going to get away but you know that's just that and as you mentioned like you're going into space because that's where aliens are and robots and we can fight them and it's okay because that's the comics code and around that time too you had the Adam West TV show of Batman come on the air and that's all the campy you know, just one word, Batuzi. That that's all you have to mention about that. Dance the Batuzi. That 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 was that Batman era. And I find that Schumacher, if Burton drew from the Bob Kane 
uh, introduction of Batman as far as comic book lines go, Schumacher definitely delved into, like you said, that Silver Age era, Comics Code era, Adam West-inspired Batman because you had some of that in the production design as well. You know, the giant oversized bombs, and to quote Adam West from Batman the movie, some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Get rid of a bomb, exactly. Sometimes Chris O'Donnell did very easily but without running around and, you know, surfing with the Joker and doing all that fun stuff. But uh, no, it very it, it really is. It's such a Silver Age feeling movie. And they even took a step further with the next one, Batman Forever, which is another one that should be on the It Should Not Be Named list. Oh, yeah. That one's going to get its own episode for sure. There's there's no question about that. Oh, Arnie, what did you do? Arnie, what did ice. you do? <laughs> it's the ice age uh if 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 star trek was was jj abrams you know um intervention as far as to stop doing uh lens flares batman and robin should be arnold schwarzenegger's intervention is to stop doing bad one-liners just please Oof. just just stop that that script had to make it through so many different production people to get to their hands it, it's it's scary to think about that of course, this movie is also the introduction of Robin as well. Now, apparently in early drafts of the previous two movies, they had they had tried to shoehorn Robin in because, you know, it was Batman and Robin. Uh, I think it worked well without Robin in those first two movies, um, just like it did in the the uh, the Christopher Nolan era of Batman films. You, you did not need Robin in those. But here you had Chris O'Donnell. And as much as people will gripe about the fact that Robin is kind of a hard character to to get across properly because of how he's portrayed in the comic books i i will say i love what they've done with on titans with uh, with uh brenton thwaites as uh as as robin uh, slash nightwing titans is such a great show i actually didn't mind chris o'donnell as robin and i think it's mainly because they i, I think in my opinion they actually nailed the dick grayson origin story in this that is one of the few things I think they did correct here. And I also think they did the relationship kind of between Bruce and the the Robin character. They kind of mashed a couple Robins together with his origin in the first place about, you know, him finding out that Bruce is Batman and not uh, someone going and telling him or like having the big sit down talk about it, which is interesting. They, they kind of did their own thing with Robin, but did the best version of the Dick Grayson origin story that has put a, been put on live action film for sure. Like you said, the Titans show is fantastic. And the other best version of Robin, I think, is also a Titans property in the Teen Titans animated series, which is obviously a much different take, but still a really good version of the character. I'm so glad you didn't say Teen Titans Go, even though I, I do enjoy Teen Titans Go. My kids get me to uh, watch that many, many a time, and, and I, I, I get a kick out of that. But, I mean, if this is supposed to pull from the Adam West era of of Batman, um, obviously you had the you know, the the, the, <laughs> the the tip of the hat to uh, to Burt Ward and the uh, holy rusted metal Batman. You know, it's 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 rusted metal. There's lots of holes in it. Like, yeah. Ad, ad, admittedly, admittedly, you know the 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 holy whatever Batman in in the original series that was fun for then, and I I, I think I'm kind of happy they got the one time in. Just once. I am happy too. And honestly, watching it as an adult now, it's funny because as a kid, I had no idea what that was. I thought that was stupid. I remember saying to my parents, I was like, what is he like? That doesn't make any sense. And like, of course, my parents got it. Now watching it, I feel like Captain America, like, ha ha, I understood that reference. When you think about comic book movies, um, it's driven by the fandom. 
it's absolutely driven by the fandom and you you have to have a whole lot of fan service in some of these you know with the the knowledge that this probably drew from the adam west era you know like you said like you you maybe didn't get it when you saw it at first but your parents probably did because they probably grew up watching the adam west shows and they probably got that that fan service moment i mean you get, if you have a comic book movie with no fan service to the fans that are there because that that's their character that's their hero or that's their villain um then you get morbius which was just horrible um but <laughs> yeah oh god but you did you got a, a a fairly decent robin don't don't even like sit on the 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 earring that he's wearing and all that. that that's just the 90s that's just what that was he was i think in relation to val kilmer the best batman they probably could have gotten even though leo dicaprio probably would have been pretty darn good i honestly think that the one of the one of the highlights of this movie is chris o'donnell and i i've said that for a long time obviously nobody does laundry like he does he wrings out the socks with his feet and like obviously much like everything else in this movie there's a lot of very on the nose very campiness to the character that is so 90s it hurts uh his suit in the end was designed by whoever does the airbrushing for nhl goalie helmets i think very bright very very 90s looking but he was he was very good at the character i feel like if we saw him in a more recent iteration uh, maybe even put in the shoes of a uh, you know Gord Joseph Levitt in The Dark Knight Rises. I think he could still pull it off. Like he was a very talented actor of the time. I think it was a good choice. And if he was given uh, more to work with, I think it would have been really really well done. It wouldn't be you know completely out of the realm of possibility if he were to end up in the upcoming Flash movie because of course they're bringing back Michael Keaton's Batman and of course this is almost a a Flashpoint kind of Crisis on Infinite Earths kind of thing so I, I mean I'd be fine if they want to bring a Chris O'Donnell Robin back in um although I'll be, I'll be curious to see just how much is in that Flash movie just you know there's so much going on with that um all comic book movies though are are anchored by their villains and we've got two of them in here one of them good so let's start with two-face this is i mean aside from the security guard in the bank at the beginning of the film arguably one of the worst parts of this movie i just don't understand the casting of it tommy lee jones is fantastic he's absolutely amazing in most everything he does he's he's so many accolades over so many years of doing amazing things but i just don't think of two-face when i think of an actor like him like i don't i think of like an army general i think of very serious characters and very serious movies and like you said the entrance was pretty good the entrance with the bank guard who was just screaming everything constantly was was very good oh, and, that's, the dumb and that's the sim- worst dialogue too from me it's boiling oh, acid. acid he hasn't touched it yet he has not a chemist he can just tell by looking at it oh boiling acid for the record, that is Joe Grafasi. He is a very accomplished actor working with a very bad script. We don't mean to pick on you, Joe yes. Grafasi, but, you know, that that that, that, not, that not script. Not even picking on any of the actors in this, even. You can't pick on any of the actors in this because most of them are very good. Oh, very it's much a, so. Very much, very much a case of an all-star cast getting handed a deflated ball, I think. But it was, yeah, the entrance was good. It started off very strong, but then you realize that Two-Face only had one face. Yeah, and and that's the problem because Harvey Dent is a very complex character, and we we had a very a very good 
uh, Two-Face out of Aaron Eckhart in the Christopher Nolan series. I think the problem with Tommy Lee Jones, and maybe this was on the Schumacher side of things, is that he kind of portrayed Two-Face as just a visual he didn't really want to he didn't really get into the psyche and the other thing i will say is that tommy lee jones seemed to be almost trying to channel um what jack nicholson did with the joker in the first batman film the 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 tim burton one i mean don't get me wrong jack nicholson's joker was great for its time and great for the the movie that it was in um it does not be heath ledger as far as the joker goes um but the problem is he tried to bring the crazy and he's standing beside Jim Carrey. And there are lots of reports that the two of them did not get along. Like apparently like, like Tommy Lee Jones told Jim Carrey straight up, like he, he did not like him, did not like his work. I I saw one quote, I think on IMDb that, that Tommy Lee Jones said, I will not condone your buffoonery. Like really? That's what I mean. It's, it's just such a, a weird butting of heads because it's just a production that you wouldn't expect to see Tommy Lee Jones in. Not that, like, not that he's not a good actor. It's just, I, you see Jim Carrey, Chris O'Donnell, Val Kilmer in Batman forever. And then, oh yeah, Tommy Lee Jones is Two-Face. It's what? Like, no, just no. I mean, yeah. I, I think if you're looking for someone of that tonality, um, and not on the list that, that we mentioned in the, uh, in the almost starring, but you have to think, if that was what they're going for, Michael Ironside would have been a much better choice to be Two-Face because Michael Ironside kind of fits that same kind of role you expect to see him as a cop or a sergeant or or a villain. Um, but Michael Ironside has the ability to be able to to play that duality very well. Uh, and that was the other thing too with, with Two-Face. We got like a couple of coin tosses, but it felt more uh, campy. And Two-Face isn't that campy character. And it just did not work. It felt a lot like you said that the character was reduced to just kind of the duality of, oh, one side is crazy and the other side is like a normal human being. And the character is kind of based off of, no, they're both Harvey Dent. One is just what he wants to do. And the other is his sensibilities telling him to stop what he wants to do. It's not two people in there. It's it's Harvey Dent trying to like make sense of his psych, but they act he plays it as if it's two separate entities sharing a body, and one of them is like a Fraggle from Fraggle Rock, and the <laughs> other one is a very tortured individual. There was a moment uh, near the end of the film where, uh, by the way, we are going to spoil the crap out of this film. So you already know <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably listened to the other, you know, some odd episodes. So, you know, we spoiled the movies. This is no surprise. But there's a scene near the end where uh, the four of them, uh, Batman, Robin, uh, Dr. Meridian and um, and Two-Face are all on those girders and he's threatening them. And, and Batman says, but what about your coin? And then he goes into this, oh, you know, oh, you're right. They're, they're, you're so right. You know, you've always been a good friend. And I'm just like, there, there's Harvey yep. Dent. I, it's the exact same. I have the exact same uh, blip in my head when that happens. It's like, this is perfect. That We could have had this the whole time and it would have been great. Especially that line, oh, you've always been a good friend. Like the way he says it, it feels like it is a different person talking than the guy the crazy guy on the right when most of the movie he just turns his head to the side and gruffs off his voice a little bit and that counts as the crazy side yeah like no like because harvey dent works with batman works with with uh, with commissioner gordon you know works with bruce wayne like like harvey dent is a regular 
a regular member of society and it's two-faced that's that that like very very moon knight-esque the two the two are very much warring within themselves um and we did that one moment because we know this script has gone went through a number of changes uh we i mean number of casts too apparently um but if we had a bit more of that and it would it would have differentiated from jim carrey one of the things i always kind of talk about is ghostbusters answer the call and the problem with that movie is that everyone tried to be the bill murray someone's got to be egon they were all trying to be crazy and there was no there, 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 was, there was no straight person in the comedy. There was no one to kind of be that even keel. Everyone was trying to get their quips in. It felt like Tommy Lee Jones was trying to out Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, but he didn't want to do it. Yeah, it's, 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 and it's sad too because, like you said, he is a good actor, but but he should be on the gruffer side of things. You know, maybe you know, maybe Tommy Lee Jones as a black mask, maybe Tommy Lee Jones as a Hugo Strange. You know, or maybe as a Two Face in a properly written Two Face role, but this isn't it. This is not Tommy Lee, it. Tommy Lee Jones is Doctor Strange. Now that that would be a home run, I think. As Hugo Strange, yeah, well, absolutely, yeah. 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 On Definitely. The, uh, on the other side, of course, you have Jim Carrey, and and this is where most people who have seen this movie said, "Yeah, the movie sucks," but Jim Carrey <laughs> as the Riddler is awesome, and awesome. They're, they're not wrong, um, but. You know, to, to to quote Tommy Lee Jones, there's a bit of buffoonery in here, right? Like at first, before he become he goes full on uh, Frank Gorshin Riddler again with the Adam West references. Um, you had a very like layered Edward Nigma. You had the obsession with Bruce Wayne. You had the manicness. You had the you know just almost the, the the sadness in Edward Nigma, and then he goes discount Ace Ventura in a Frank Gorshin leotard and it, it, it's a different Riddler than what we see and that's I mean maybe that's part and parcel with with getting all the brainwaves you know stuck into his head whatever but Jim Carrey for you is this the best part of this film I think it definitely is, but I think you hit the nail so square on the head, Jason, when you said that there is a turning point in this movie. There's an actual physical point where things take a turn uh, down over the crest of Splash Mountain into the thorns below. It is the exact moment when he tests out his television uh, brain drain machine on his boss for the first time, and there's that scene where he kind of, quote unquote, becomes the Riddler instead of just Edward Nigma. When he puts on that bowler hat, he joins the Ministry of Silly Walks and he never goes back. <laughs> I can't believe you get a Monty Python reference in a Batman film podcast. I'm all for it. <laughs> Am I wrong when I say that? He creeps around and after that, it is 100%. It's Jim Carrey being 110% Jim Carrey oh, at absolutely. all times after that, after the transformation. And in turn, like we said before, Tommy Lee Jones then has to try to crank the dial up a little bit more just to kind of survive in the light that this guy's casting off all the time. But I will say if if you are using the Adam West era Batman as your point of reference for this film, I mean anyone who liked the Adam West era Batman for all its silliness and for all its campiness probably actually didn't hate this film because it, it, it borrowed from that. And you could see Jim Carrey really, really tapped into the Frank Gorshin Riddler from that series. Um 
you know, there was there was a, a, a litheness to him. There there was a almost a ballet dancer's grace in the way he would walk around. Um, that's why I always thought that you know when they were talking about who would be an, you know, a villain in a Christopher Nolan Batman film after the first one, I'm like, please, please do Riddler and make it David Tennant. It will be awesome. Um, we never got that, but we did get David Tennant and Jessica Jones, so I'm I'm fine with that. But Jim Carrey dances around this whole movie and you know on its own as like oh batman's supposed to be dark that's not the riddler but it kind of is because it's that frank gorshin era riddler and it, he taps into that so well and even other iterations of the riddler since have it was one of those characters in the 60s cartoon the riddler was not really that big of a character on the page and the the show was one of the ones where people kind of latched onto the riddler because of the performance by gorshin so after that, the Riddler in the books has never really been much different than the Frank Gorshin character. Yes, it's gotten a lot darker. And yes, he does do a lot more like outright crime and like uh, much more nefarious and dark schemes rather than just, you know, trap them in a riddle room and see if they can find their way out. But at the core, it's still that bowler hat wearing, twirling a cane around, like solve this to get out of this big green room kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So the character was played quite on the nose. It was just, it was Jim Carrey in the role and he like cranked that dial all the way up to the top and saw how much you can get out of that uh, that side, that giggling, jumping around, crazy high energy performance. But to the same token as well, and and you see this in the script, is that part of the Riddler's motivation is to challenge the Batman because in Batman, he sees an equal. In Batman, he sees a challenge, so he wants to be able to create the riddle that he can't break. So it's almost like the... And you saw that with the Paul Deneau version in The Batman, um, which creepy as hell, but Paul Deneau is just pulled on a masterclass as far as a villain goes. Um... This is a different style, but you do see that 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 tete-a-tete with his riddles, trying to get Batman to challenge him to become the great detective. It's it's almost like his purpose of being a villain is to make the hero better in a weird kind of way, and it does work. It's a game to him. It's a game that must be won. That's what it is for all for every iteration of the Riddler. It's always I am better at this than you. I am smarter than you. And at the beginning of it, you see those brief glimpses of, oh, this is really good. And that's the motivation when he's obsessed over Bruce Wayne, because I want to be you. I can be you. I have the same ideas. My ideas are even better than yours, but people just don't see it. And that is, that's the Riddler character at the core. It's, I am so much better than everybody says I am. I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than everybody. And it is a very, it's a game of one-upsmanship with this character at all times, even with the Paul Dano version, which was absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. And that's where I don't think Jim Carrey gets enough credit for this role in that, you know, you do see that vulnerableness, that, that, you know, that, that lack of self-assurance, that lack of self-confidence in him, because he looks up to people like Bruce Wayne and to Batman and says, you know, I, I can be you, but I have to see just how good you are. Um, and testing, testing that, 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 that unattainable goal there there's that sadness in him even though and it's covered up with the manicness in it and the sadness comes from so many places too it comes with feelings of inadequacy because of his parents if you go back to the 
character's original origins. He was a genius from when he was a kid, but his parents were very abusive and said, you're cheating. You're not really this smart. You're just cheating. So there was always that need to prove himself. Like you said, that's where it comes from. The no, no, I can show you I'm better. I'm better. And I'm going to make you see. I'll make you understand, as Jim Carrey says. And then there is La Femme Fatale, Dr. Chase Meridian, Nicole Kidman. Um, Obviously, we had Kim Basinger in the first movie. We had Catwoman, Michelle Pfeiffer in the second. Chase Meridian in the pantheon of romantic interest for Batman in those first four movies. Where does she stack? I'm sorry, but she's at the bottom for me. Really? Uh, Chase, Chase Meridian was, I love Nicole Kidman. I think her work is fantastic. I think her husband's work is fantastic. I'm a fan of that whole family. But I just, I cannot get past the point that she is a psychologist that has every single, there's a man literally doing everything except holding up a sign that says, I am Batman. And she cannot figure it out. He tells her the dreams that he is having about a giant bat haunting his nightmares. And that has something very heavily to do with his shattered psyche. And then she looks at him and goes, you're trying to tell me something, but I don't know what it is. Well, I mean, you just kissed a man that was dressed as a giant bat 12 hours ago. Lois Lane couldn't pick her up. You know, figure out Superman because of a pair of glasses. (laughs) So because of a pair of glasses, that's true. Right, right. But I mean, the the funny thing I find with Nicole Kidman in this one um, is that Doctor Chase Meridian is you know is a psychologist dealing with uh, dualities in character. Um, You know, she could see you know what the Riddler is for what for what he is. She she knew exactly how to pinpoint uh Two Face and and exactly why he does the way the things the way he does in relation to Harvey Dent as well. Um but there's a duality to her as well because when you see her interact with Bruce Wayne, uh it's very clinical. It's very guarded. It's very much the the I I am smarter than you, you rich buffoon um until of course it becomes a little bit more. Uh, but with Batman, you have the, 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 for lack of a better term, fawning schoolgirl. So there's this duality in her as well that she just cannot comprehend until that moment where Batman shows up at the balcony and she's like, yeah, I'm going to go with Bruce kind of thing. Like, like it, it's a fascinating dichotomy of, of this, you know, physician heal thyself concept with her. And I will say that that scene is actually one of, she may not be one of my favorite parts of the movie, but that scene definitely is because I think both of those actors really knocked it out of the park in that one where she just goes, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Like there's somebody else. And then uh, uh, obviously Bruce Wayne is sitting there like with his mouth agape, like, oh my God, she means me. She actually wants like me, me, not this Uh me. And it's a really cool moment, and I think it's one of the one of the better tones of the movie, where it's just like, oh, that's good. That like that that felt really good. They did a great job at that. But uh, she, the character might not have been my favorite in the movie, but that moment was definitely one of the high points in the whole thing. Oh, absolutely, uh, and of course, like just a quality actress in Nicole Kidman who really can do no wrong. I, I, I and don't... Val Kilmer, Val Kilmer is sitting there with his jaw quivering, like as he's just like, uh, 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 like he does that really well. I think. <laughs> I, I will say I'm, it's a good thing I think that they went with Nicole Kidman because I don't know how a Renee Russo would play against Val Kilmer. I think she would have played better against Michael Keaton, and that was the original game plan. Uh, but Nicole Kidman in this is 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 all good, and again. 
1995 like like i mean really is there ba- is is there a non-prime nicole kidman time but you know i don't think so no i really don't think so she's still great today you mentioned michael goff earlier on in the show as alfred uh and with all due respect to michael kane to jeremy irons and to andy circus this this is alfred that's Alfred. This is exactly is- how Alfred should be. There, there is just such a, a kind, gentle, doting, yet ain't gonna take no crap kind of kind of Alfred as well. Like he will put Bruce Wayne in his place because to him he's still that little boy, even though he's doting and caring while Batman comes back all bruised and battered much less and it's it's just so much like the early comic books because it's much less of a preachy alfred too this alfred isn't like michael kane uh or any of the other previous that that always are constantly saying you have to stop this you have to stop doing this it's much more of what the original concept was of it's the father figure that does not want him doing this but it's gonna he's gonna do everything he can to make sure he stays alive and yeah. keeps everything running and make sure everything goes well and he's such a good father figure to all the characters even he has some really good interactions with robin as well uh, and then making the suit for him, and just just the best turn is Alfred. So good. If I if I'm gonna draw a comparison here, um, I have to draw kind of a Harry Potter comparison because um, you had in the first two movies you had if I'm, I'm pretty sure it's uh, Richard Harris as Dumbledore, and then he passed away, and then they brought in someone else to play Dumbledore. And while physically uh, the likeness is there, there was a bit of a tonality difference. You know, Michael Goff as Alfred is that first two movies Dumbledore. And I think you get Michael Caine as that as that second Dumbledore, but it's a different era of Batman anyways. It's a different source material that they're pulling from, and it's a different tonality that they're pulling from. You know, Michael Goff is very much that, that the first two movies dealing with the young kids, uh, Dumbledore, and that's where that kindness kind of comes in. He's very much both in the movie sense and in the comic book sense, the original version of Alfred. Mm-hmm. There were, of course, were, you know, other roles in here. Like Drew Barrymore was the one that kind of stood out. Like all of a sudden, like, whoa, 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 where, yeah. where did Drew Barrymore come from? Like who? So many, so many people forget she's in this movie because it was such a very small part that was, I think she was only in like three or four scenes in this movie. Yeah. Her and, and Debbie Mazar as sugar and spice quote unquote. More of that heavy handedness on the, on the toothpaste, tooth, two face duality, that house, the, the condo that he had one side of the table was like, you know, uh, eggs. And she had like all of these like beautifully uh, prepared five-star dishes. And the other side, I think it was like raw donkey and a charred heart of oxen and straight moonshine for the other side of Two-Face because if you didn't know, there's two sides to him. <laughs> Let, let's be real didactic about that. You know, he's Two-Face, he's got two personalities. You're only going to see one, but there's a lot of twos in there. A oh, lot he, of twos. You, you just kind of, you just know his number would be 555-222-2222. Um, right at the start of the movie, I think one of the first lines when they come in, oh yeah, it's the second anniversary, it's the second of March on the second anniversary of when we caught him. Of course he's going to be today. Like Exactly. And again, that's also very, very Adam West. Um, very. You mentioned his little hideaway there. The, 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 how do we say split condo, if you will? Um, yeah. We got. We have to talk about the production design here because I kind of we kind of teased a little bit about this with the whole you know Tokyo neon nightclub kind of look. This is a very different 
Gotham City that we are used to. You know, different from the Tim Burton era, different from the Adam West. Like, like where does this Gotham City come from? It, it felt more like they were going for a Blade Runner feel as far as Gotham City goes, as opposed to what we've seen before. And see, here's the thing. What we've seen before, what we saw recently, I think, was a correct attempt at what they were shooting for here. Because Matt Reeves, the Batman, had a very neon Gotham. The, the Iceberg Lounge was very much, it, it didn't feel like Batman forever, but it was like, okay, if they did Batman in like a very neon drip setting right, it feels like it would look more like the Batman than this. That being said, the set design, I think, was fan Like, everything looked fantastic, and it was very poppy, and all the costumes were really well done, but it just didn't add to the Batman tone that you expected was the problem. And I also find that Jim Carrey is the Riddler, I find that character is so crazy and zany and neon and colorful anyway that when the whole world is like that, like it was there, it forces Jim Carrey to try to turn it up even louder to be to stick out amongst all of this craziness. This is where 1995 really comes into play in a good way um, because you have to build the sets. You can't just green screen and CGI the whole thing because the technology is not there in 1995 it has to be that big set uh it has to be these these grandiose elaborate things and as you mentioned jim carrey's gonna gonna turn it up to be able to be seen in all this this is why when you, when you go back to films like and i'm gonna go back even further here with 1980s flash gordon which you know that, that, that that's a guilty pleasure of mine i will admit um but the set design, like Ming's throne room in Flash Gordon, is one of the most beautiful beautiful sets that that you can get in, you know, even in a comic book film because it, it's Flash Gordon. It's a comic book strip. In uh, Masters of the Universe, which is a horrible film, you know, the, you know, let's be honest, it's a horrible film, and we've talked about that film on this show before. But the 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 set design of Skeletor's throne room is grandiose and epic and that that was money well spent in that film. Here, yes, while it's not the Gotham City that you're used to, um these are large grandiose sets that really kind of just just pop off the screen. Like it was it was so so big and I think the biggest knock on it is that it just wasn't what wasn't done before. So it, it does feel like that different Batman. Um, and that's okay. You had different eras of Batman. You have lots of different source material to pull from. Every comic book movie that comes out, the big question these days is, well, what source, what era are they pulling from? What source material are they pulling from? Um, you see that with Moon Knight right now, where where people on Twitter are putting up comic panels side by side with the um, with the with the sh- the scenes from the show and saying, "Yep, they pulled from this arc. They pulled from this. They Captain Marvel. They." pulled from a specific arc that was done by a certain writer and it's like okay so this is this is the captain marvel we're going to get knowing that this is that adam west era style it makes sense that it's going to be this big grandiose thing but but despite what we say about the production design we cannot we cannot ignore that this is in my opinion hands down the worst batmobile ever it has a dorsal fin it's Why? I, I i called it on uh, my little notepad that i have here when i rewatch this uh for academic purposes i have the giant light bright phallic batmobile yep it's and that's 
Yeah. It looks like it just a big light up weird shape. It doesn't look like a car. It looks like the rocket. Uh, it looks like the rocket car from the Simpsons episode. That's what it. <laughs> that's what it looks like. It looks like the most obvious like giant afterburner. This is going to be a toy. Look for it at your nearest Walmart. It's, that's what it screams to me. I, I mean, again, to 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 quote Ace Ventura, does it have a dorsal fin? It does. <laughs> it actually does. It looks like Aquaman's car. Batman stole it, painted it black, and put some blue lights on it. It's not the Batmobile. You know, and and that's the thing. I see the costume design, and I see the elaborateness of the sets and the characters, and it's a comic book movie. It is designed to sell toys on top of movie tickets. And, you know, say what you will about Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face, but that look is going to sell well as a toy. Say what you will about Jim Carrey, it's going to sell well as a toy. Batman, Robin, they... You've got two different Batsuits in there, so we're going to get two different toys because you know they're going to do that. That that mobile sucks. One of those Batsuits completely pointless. He just, oh, it's the sonar Batsuit. What does that do? It's when I throw the battering, a goggle comes down over my face, but nothing else. It never really explains what the sonar was, but definitely worse Batmobile. Yeah. Especially after the Tim Burton movies, which had one of the best. Oh, absolutely. Like, you want that roar of the engine. You want that sleek yeah. look. I mean, I mean, yes, you could sit there and say, well, it's it's would Batman have missiles in the Batmobile? Well, maybe he would, but, you know... <sighs> He's prepared for every situation, and some situations are robots and tanks. Right. Unmanned. And, yeah, we, we, we did get the Batwing again. We got the Batboat. See, put the put the fin on the Batboat. I'm cool with that. I'm fine yeah, with no that. Yeah, no fins on the boat, but a fin on the car. Really doesn't make much sense, does it? it? Eh. Just, eh. If, Maybe if, it was for aerodynamic purposes, so when it goes straight up the side of a building with a grappling hook somehow, it... Uh, that's maybe it's for aerodynamic purposes when it's going straight up into the air. I don't know. I'm not an engineer. And then for some reason, when Robin, you know, Chris O'Donnell takes uh, takes the car out for his joy ride, and for some reason, the dorsal fin has split and it's kind of bouncing around. Uh, even though the car's not bouncing around, it's bouncing. The, the 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 split dorsal fin is bouncing around like a low rider. Why? Like, is he trying to get TV reception in this? Why is, for some for no reason whatsoever, the dorsal fin splits? Is that for a purpose? Is there a reason why? We don't know. We don't know. It sucks as a Batmobile. <laughs> and even in the 60s stuff, with, with the same kind of thing, I always wondered, like, yes, you're Batman, but why do you, why do you ostentatiously theme all of the stuff you have around Bat? It, first of all, has to be expensive. And second of all, it outright ruins any of like the actual usability of some of these items just because, no, it has to have wings. You have to put <laughs> horns on it. Uh, the only thing I can say about the fin in, in in making the toys for this is that you can take the car, turn it upside down, hold on to the fin, pretend it's a gun. That, that, that That's what you can do with the toy of the Batmobile. That's that's fine. Um and there's a but there is a subtle little thing at the beginning of this film and it's in the opening credits and it's the way the names fly in and as, and as I was doing my rewatch on this a couple of days ago in preparation for the show I'm watching the, the names kind of fly in and even though they don't have like that that trailing effect on the on the animations 
it was very reminiscent of the Christopher Reeve era Superman films and knowing that they're in the same kind of DC universe and they even name drop Metropolis in this film. Um, that kind of stood out to me and I'm just like, Hey, maybe, maybe they, there was a thought there, but obviously nothing came to fruition until much, much later. And I'm sure we'll talk about Dawn of Justice on this film somewhere down the road. But, but seeing that, I mean, again, there's that homage to kind of what came before, even if it's not the Tim Burton era. And also you're talking about the opening credits. That was actually, I said it started strong there because like the gearing up and, you know, the putting the stuff on and everything. It was a very cool way to like kind of roll the credits most of them just do it like in a cloud of bats. Like most of the Nolan movies were just that. It was a cloud of bats through the cave or something like that. But it was cool that it just established like, okay, you know the drill. Like he's got all the stuff and like here we go. And then it was immediately a one-line gag. The first line of the film is, uh, can I at least uh, convince you to take a sandwich with you by Alfred? And he turns around and goes, I'll take drive through," And he gets into the, to the Batmobile. Yeah. But I, I mean, I can see... I can honestly see why people going into Batman Forever, having watched two Tim Burton versions of Batman with Michael Keaton as Batman, walk out of that and go, um, um, what did I just watch? But then go back and watch it again. And as you're watching this and you're trying to wrap your head around it, just think back to the final shot before the credits. And it's Batman and Robin running towards the screen in front of the bat signal that is a direct homage to adam west and burt ward that's your inspiration and if you liked those shows go into it with that mindset if you're going into this movie with the tim burton mindset or heaven forbid a christopher nolan mindset you are not going to like this film but if you go into this with that adam west frank gorshin burt ward that mindset you are actually going to have a good time with this film that that's i think that's the perspective aspect of this absolutely like if you're go you hit the nail on the head when you compare like if you're going in as a nolan fan and you want that same kind of hit you're not going to find it here you're not going to find like super played out slow burn character developing performances and very very high stakes where it's like the whole city's at risk and it's like there's this guy who's basically a terrorist and he's got one boat full of prisoners and like it's it's so all the time at a very tense high and then there's this one that is very much like you know to they have a giant hourglass machine island and he's stolen his friend and his girlfriend and he's sitting on a throne of golden think gear statues dressed as david bowie yeah 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 come and find me like it's it's very different but at the same time it's the same character and if you're a fan of all the generations and can kind of accept that you know, this is where the roots are. That there would have there would be no Batman right now without Adam West. Without that campiness, the character would not have survived. I'm gonna put a hypothetical out there for you before we get to our MVPs here. Because we we mentioned the Flash movie a little bit earlier. And we know that Michael Keaton is coming back at Bat as Batman. And we know there's the possibility of other iterations of past and other infinite Earths. If Val Kilmer makes an appearance in the flash movie are you cool with that or are you just like why i'm cool with that i think he's earned his place he's earned his place as the outlier of this is the line anything campier than this and it's a point of no return we've we've tested it we've seen it happen physically this is this is good 
when you check your brain at the door and you, you go in with certain premises. So I, I would 100% be okay with it. I think they could definitely make some good jokes. I think they could do some good references with it. And Val Kilmer as an actor is a good actor. I think his story is really good too. So um, as long as you did the character justice, ironically, as we're talking about a superhero. <laughs> you zone, went there. You went there. Yeah, didn't I you? went there. I, listen, I haven't done the Batman voice badly yet. So. <laughs> but I, I think if you go into it with that mindset, I think I'd be actually happy to see Val Kilmer, not just because of the personal bias, but I, I would be happy to see Val Kilmer back in, in a flashpoint scenario just to see kind of where what else they could do with this character with the benefit of hindsight and seeing how everything went. I do think it also needs to be said that Val Kilmer's Batman wasn't bad, but his Bruce Wayne was lacking a bit. And that's kind of a, you know, we spot, we talked about duality a bit before, right? Michael Keaton to me was a great Batman and he was an okay Bruce Wayne. Val Kilmer is a better Batman than Bruce Wayne. George Clooney is a better Bruce Wayne, but he sucked as a Batman. You know, Christopher Nolan, you know, gets you the guy that can do both. Um, Robert Pattinson's a good Batman, but it's a very different Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I think that's where it sits, right? Are you a good Bruce, uh, are you a good Batman? Are you a good Bruce, Wayne, good Bruce or Wayne? Are you both? And I think Val Kilmer actually was a good Batman. Just the Bruce Wayne part was a little bit lacking. I mentioned his, I mentioned the Batman voice. I think he actually had one of the better Batman voices because it's hard to do that and not sound silly. And there's some actors who, like, I think Bale's voice, that was one of kind of the detractors of his performances, that it was really good. But when he was talking as Batman, sometimes it was hard to take him seriously. Because sometimes it, where is she? Yeah, where is she? <laughs> always the rooftop scene that comes to mind. is Sometimes it was unintentionally funny. Whereas this, it was just enough to kind of disguise what his real voice was, but still very, like, assertive sounding kind of thing. It was much closer to his actual voice, and he wasn't trying too hard. So I think he had one of the better Batman voices at when he was in the suit. And that also harkens back to like the old Superman radio days uh, when the actor and I can't remember who's, you know, the name of the actor. And I apologize for my for my ineptitude in that one. But he would make a point like, you know, when, when that whole line of the, this calls for a job, this is uh, this is a job for Superman. And he would start the line in a, that more lilty voice of Clark Kent and then change the tenor at the end. You know, this is a job for Superman. And in radio you had to do that and this you kind of get that same thing with bruce wayne and batman yes the voice does change a bit and i think you know whether it's intentional or not diedrich bader has justified val kilmer's batman through brave and the bold but it has come time lyle for you to put your money on the line who is your mvp of batman forever this is a difficult decision because on one hand of course you want to give it to Jim Carrey, obviously, because everybody says like he is the movie and much like a lot of Jim Carrey movies, it's just his fingerprints kind of all over it. But honestly, I'm going to have to give it to who we said before was the quintessential version of a character that I've been reading since I was a little, little kid. You know what I mean? So I'm going to give it to Alfred Pennyworth to, uh, uh, Michael Go, Michael Goff. Michael Go, Michael Goff. I'm going to give it to him because, out of sheer respect for the character of Alfred and the one thing that was derived from all the different comic books in this, and really struck me as that is that character to a T. He did it perfectly. You know what's funny? He's my MVP too. There this is, is why there there is something about his 
Alfred that just and you know aside from the guy who played um, Commissioner Gordon though they're the only two that went through all four uh, of that era films um, Michael Goff's Alfred was was able to bring into the fold take care of and help nurture Chris O'Donnell's uh, Dick Grayson um, the fact that you know he was able to bring in uh, Barbara Gordon as far as uh, Batgirl Wendy even though they, they kind of changed the storyline a little bit but you know it's like Uncle Alfred kind of thing but um, you know there was just something so calming, soothing, and pleasing about his presence that it didn't matter if it was Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, or George Clooney. Michael Goff is was the best Alfred, and anyone that came after it, like you can sit there and say, "Yeah, Christian Bale is a better Batman." You can say Robert Pattinson's a good Batman. You can say Batfleck is a Batman, um, but <laughs> but you have to sit there and say that all other Alfreds pale in comparison to Michael Goff, and that's not a knock on them. That's just acknowledging how good Michael Goff was. He looked the part. He sounded the part. He he was so his cadence was so loving for everybody that was around him. He just seems like this sweet old man. Like you just he seems like Alfred. And he survived, like you said, through all four of the movies and was even one of the bright spots that was still consistently good and was consistently like just as I said, amazing. In Batman Forever. He continued this performance into that movie and was still his stalwart self, dependable to the end, even through the hardest of times. <laughs> the, the hardest of times being all of Arnold Schwarzenegger's one-liners in Batman and yes. Robin. Now, for those of you who have, uh, for those of our listeners who have never heard the Oh Yeah Wrestling Podcast, tell us a little bit about this and the Oh Yeah Sports kind of podcast network that you guys have created. The Oh Yeah Sports brand is a brand that all of us at the CSM have come up with, CSM College of Sports Media here in Toronto. Uh, we just all kind of rallied behind our sport of choice and branched off into our own little little section of the brand oh yeah sports so you know we got our guys at uh, oh yeah nba oh yeah f1 uh there's oh yeah hockey of course oh yeah sports the original account that kind of anchors us all together and us oh yeah wrestling we cover of course the sport of kings professional wrestling everything from attitude era stuff to the current stuff stuff over in japan all elite wwe uh, me and my buddy christian uh just kind of talk about another really passionate set of characters in our lives which are the wwe superstars of then now and forever Please tell me when you introduce your show that you get your best, you know, macho man Randy Savage on there and go, oh, yes, let me do a Slim Jim. Oh, I can't, can't believe I, can't, I went there. I can't, <laughs> I can't do a good Randy Savage. That's the unfortunate part of all the things. Like, it's like, it's there's something. He's one of those voices that only he can really do it correctly, I think. Well, plus it tears your throat apart when you try to do it. Oh, my it. goodness. I don't know how he did it for that long because, like, it must have, he must have, he went on some rants sometimes to just sit there in this mood, that low. Like, it just. It's it's must have been very strenuous. I, I feel like I need now to do the Randy Savage in the in the sign off here. So, if there is a movie that you think is unfairly maligned, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to strain myself here. But to, <laughs> but Lyle, thank you so much for this. And to our listeners, let's try this again in a normal voice. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned, or is just so bad that there is no way in hell that we're going to be able to find anything good to say about it, hit us up on twitter at not that badcast we will watch it 
we will dissect it and we will find the good things to say because we here at it's not that bad will find the a grades and b movies make sure you check out lyle and christian's podcast oh yeah wrestling uh wherever you hear your podcast there for us thank you for listening to us whether it's on spotify apple good pods by the way thank you to everyone at good pods who's been listening to us and getting us up on the tv and film charts on the indie charts thank you so much for that until next time on it's not that bad i'm jason he's lyle take care it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.